Well, Coons, the round ball game is always top of the agenda here on Sports Day. And the man we'd love to get on is Daniel Garb, who is a football expert working across A-League, women's football, men's football, understands Champions League and the Premier League more than anyone else I know. Garby, welcome to Sports Day. Very kind of you, Tommy. Thanks, mate. Nice to speak to you. Hello, Adam. Let's let's Hello, start. Gabby. Let's start with Premier League. Um, Tottenham broke their three, broke their losing streak last week. They've got some players back from injury. Can I believe, as a Tottenham fan, please, that they're about to turn the corner and um, and challenge again for maybe a European spot, or is that a bit too optimistic? No, I think it's fair. I think the Champions League would be an enormous achievement for Ange Postecoglou in his first year, considering. They sold Harry Kane, considering that there's only really one spot available. I mean, Man City, Liverpool and Arsenal, you could pretty much put down as a lock for three of those spots. So, yeah, there's, and Aston Villa are having a wonderful campaign. You'd expect Newcastle United to be strong in the second half of the season. So you're looking at Newcastle, Villa, Tottenham and, and United, if they can stabilise somewhat, fighting it out for fourth spot. It'd be difficult. There's Europa League positions as well, which are important too. Tottenham would love to get back into... One of those slots, but overall, Spurs fans are just over the moon with Ange and the impact he's had early on. They had a little dip due to injuries and suspensions. Spurs fans expected that. There was no panic whatsoever. And the way in which they responded, a point away against Man City, and then the annihilation of Newcastle United has lifted things again recently. They're going to go through a tricky period now where the games come thick and fast. We all know about the Christmas period in the English Premier League and how your squad gets tested dramatically, especially in... The cold as well. Um, so that'll be testing again for Ange. His first time that he would have uh, gone through that in the Premier League. But uh, the way in which they're playing, uh, the spirit and enthusiasm get back them to, uh, to be in a solid position come the end of the campaign. And the players and, and fans are just delighted with uh, the impact of our Aussie. So for those of our listeners, uh, Garby, who may not understand the, the Christmas period and what goes on and how hectic it is, can you elaborate on, on that period for us? It's just games all the time. So all the other European leagues have a break for Christmas. They take a couple of weeks off. It's a competitive advantage, if you like, for the Premier League that they don't. They, they play all the way through. And it's uh, a hallmark of English football. Managers always complain about it. They say it's too much football <laughs> back-to-back. And there'll be little breaks thrown in after this period. But really, between Christmas and, and New Year and just after that, there are a lot of games. There's FA Cup ties thrown in as well. It's fantastic. And I think it's uh, something the Premier League hangs its hat on. And they always feel the march on other European leagues who have a break. Uh, they yep. keep going. So there's some big games as well during that period. I mean, Liverpool have got Manchester United coming up. They've got Arsenal next week, which are you know, two legitimate title contenders going head-to-head, pretty sure on Christmas Eve, Australian time. So... A mammoth contest. They don't just put the weaker fixtures in that time frame and, and roll out the game. There are some massive contests that take place at that time of the year as well. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's special for football fans, and we wake up at all hours of the morning and, uh, and enjoy it. So, you mentioned Manchester. You know, we've got uh, Liverpool, West Ham, Aston Villa, and then uh, Forest Spurs in January. Uh, where do you see these points coming from? Can they get their season? Well, 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 they're spluttering. They're not. They're not battling away. But can they kickstart their their campaign over the next month with four big games? It's hard to see it happening, Coons. I mean, their Champions League campaign was disastrous. To finish bottom of that group <laughs> is just so poor for a squad of that stature, and what really one that had been building. They were encouraged by what was happening under Eric Ten Hag 
at the end of last season. They thought they were going to build towards a title challenge in this campaign, and it's just fallen apart once again, like it has under so many managers since Sir Alex Ferguson has departed. The most startling stat that came out this week, this is one that had me gobsmacked, was that they've lost more games at Old Trafford since Sir Alex Ferguson left than in the entire 26 years when he was at the club. <laughs> oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And it's going the same way for Eric Ten Hag at the moment. So United fans are, are fearful at the moment of another battering at their fiercest rivals, Liverpool, at Anfield on the weekend, Monday morning, Australian time. They lost 7-0 there last season. That was a record in that fixture. And United fans fear, fear as if they're going to be battered again because confidence is low. They've got a blockage against Liverpool at the moment to just seem to revel when they come up against them. And it's got that feeling that it could get ugly. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. Maybe they can engineer something that uh, will get them going again. Do you subscribe to the reporting over there that um, that a manager can lose the dressing room? And that's a direct quote from a Sky Sports report, but it's been sort of widely suggested as well. We had Robbie Slater on, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, saying that what, like asking what is losing the dressing room? And this is referring directly to Eric Van Targ as well. Yeah, I think losing the dressing room, it happens in any sport. I'm sure Adam's experienced it playing, you know, the AFL. It's just when the players aren't all behind the coach, when they lose confidence in what the coach wants, when there's a disconnect there. Now, at United, I don't think it's all the coach's fault. Now, it, it can't be. You can't have manager after manager coming in and the same situation occurring. The problems are deeper. There are cultural issues there. And to be honest, I just don't think they've ever recovered from Sir Alex Ferguson's departure. He ran his rule over every single department of that football club to the point that when he left, the people didn't actually know how to run the football club. <laughs> yeah. and they didn't. They didn't have a clue. And they've never actually fully recovered from that 10 years on, which is yeah. damning. And those problems still linger. So... I think that definitely seeps into the dressing room because they have deep-seated cultural issues at that club. And Eric Ten Hag, they thought he was the man to overturn it. He's a long way off proving that he will be yet. But uh, there's no doubt there is a disconnect there between the players and, and the manager because you can't play as poorly as they have on so many occasions this season without there being some sort of issue. And even though he was named Manager of the Month quite recently as well, which I found quite jarring and quite interesting. Um, and, and even watching Sir Alex Ferguson, the way that he dealt with David Beckham in the in the documentary, um, I'm not sure whether that style of management still works. So someone comes in and tries to do what Sir Alex Ferguson did and have control over every department in the football club, it could, it could end up in tears. And that seems to be what's happening at, at many football clubs around uh, England and around the world. Yeah, for sure. And I think David Moyes was honest. He said he tried to be like Sir Alex when he went to United. That wasn't going to work. So they brought in managers who had that reputation. Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho, these big presence individuals who have done that before at football clubs. They couldn't get it going. So they brought in someone different now, and Eric Ten Hag, who's younger, and the more consultative approach to things. It started looking good. They thought, all right, now we've got someone from the new breed, and it's starting to fall apart under him as well. So... Whichever way they go, it's not working. And that tells you that the issue actually doesn't lie with the manager completely. I'm sure Ken Hag's made some, some errors in the way in which he's dealt with players. But uh, the problems uh, come from above. Any other clashes over the weekend that you're looking forward to? Uh, Everton, Burnley, 4.30. They're out of the relegation zone. Can they do mm. something with this season? 
doing well ever since they copped that points deduction. Uh, it seems like it's just uh, inspired them in the in the right way, and they they're picking up points. So they seem to have uh, have recovered quite nicely. Chelsea's a very big watch. Yeah. So you know they've got a, a game this week. They're at they're at home. I mean they're expected to win. Uh, they're against Sheffield United at home. So you look at it, and you'd go it should be three points for Chelsea, but. They've probably snuck under the radar a little bit because they've been so poor for so long and United are stealing so many headlines. But the amount of money that they've spent and they've got in a well-credentialed manager, Mauricio Pochettino, it's bizarre that they haven't started improving enough. They need to get three points at home this weekend. They failed to do that. And yeah, I think the knives will start to come out for Pochettino as well in a big way. So that's a, a big watch this weekend. Oh, yeah, that's big. That's massive, actually. Uh, losing at home would be huge. I think Chelsea are 12 from the table at the moment, and they would be expecting to uh, make Europe, if not um, win the Premier League, and they're a long, long way off. Hey, um, Turkish football's night of shame. I, I don't think this has got quite enough mainstream media coverage over here, but it was unbelievable to see what happened to a referee, quite a high-profile referee in Turkey over there a few days ago. Can you talk us through that and what are the ramifications? So he was punched, wasn't he? I mean, yeah. he was punched by an official at a Turkish club. The president. I think that's what I saw. I mean, the president, I mean, it was just pathetic. I, had, I didn't catch it in its totality. I haven't yeah. seen the response to the story in detail, but I did see the image at the time and... Uh, I mean, it's just shameful stuff. So what does it say about uh, the way that footballers, soccer players, treat officials? We know it's been a hot topic as well in England, but worldwide, are we reaching a point now where a trigger point where it has to change? I think it was getting better for a little period of time. I think it's receded this year. I'm not sure what the reason is for that. I think your general frustration with VAR might be a reason for it. I think that the delays, starting to lead to situations where you know, tensions are rising more and more. I saw there was a recommendation by IFAB, the rules officials, to bring a rule in place where only the captain can speak to the referee like we have in rugby. And you might have issues with rugby union or rugby league as a sport, but you can't deny that the way in which they deal with officials, it's just about the best of any footballing code. I mean, only the captain speaks. They refer to them as uh, the level of arguing is so low. Um, and that's to be admired. Can football bring in something like that potentially? Would it last? I'm not sure. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a, a troublesome season in that sense, I think, uh, around the globe where, where tension seems to have risen a little bit more. And the fourth official cops the major brunt of it, which I always find ridiculous. I did games on the sidelines sometimes, did it in England, did it over here. And you see the fourth official just being abused all yeah. the time. And they can't do anything. They can't change the decision. They're a punching bag, aren't they? Um, tough spot to be in and the assistant coach sometimes there are assistant coaches who are it seems like their only job is to argue with the fourth official and <laughs> um, it just seems like a futile exercise all the way around it was pretty crazy to watch that vision i only saw it um, a few minutes ago so uh hopefully that uh, doesn't happen here too no. often that's fair to say uh asian cup january uh, for the socceroos it's an exciting time how's the squad looking I saw an injury to matthew lecky uh, a hamstring injury not too long ago. So uh, apart from that injury, how's, how is the squad shaping up? Well, that's a big concern for Graham Arnold, the lecky injury. So it's four to six weeks. It's the kind of injury that would lead him to ponder whether Leckie's worth taking. Now, I think he probably would for the knockout stages because of his experience. We all remember it was only a year ago that he scored that memorable goal against Denmark to get Australia through to the, uh, the knockout stages of the World Cup. So 
he's worth taking, but you're probably going to have to carry him through the group stages. Matt Ryan, the captain, the goalkeeper, has got a fractured cheekbone as well, but he should be okay for the group stages. He might need to wear a protective mask of some sort, but if they had to get through a couple of games with a backup keeper, we play injury in the first game, I mean, we'd be fine. So Matt Ryan will go. But the Leckie injury is, is a blow because at his best, he is a, a leader for the team in attack. I can't wait for the Asian Cup. I think the Socceroos are a serious chance to win it. We, we feel really comfortable in Qatar. Uh, we did so well there in qualification. And of course, the memorable World Cup. There are big challenges, of course. Japan and South Korea are always tough to play. Saudi Arabia are building all the time. They've got Roberto Mancini as their manager now and billions being pumped into their football program all the time to improve their, their coaches and their the resources at their disposal. Iran are a strong team. It's never easy to win the Asian Cup. We've only won it once. But I think this is a really good opportunity for Graham Arnold and his side. I think Australians are stuck getting their head around the, the Asian Cup campaign, which will be in a good time here in Australia um, from mid-January. So uh, I think we're a, we're a real show in a place where we enjoy playing football in Qatar to, uh, to make it all the way to the final, hopefully. And the Matildas are in the middle of their Olympic qualifiers. The Sam Kerr injury didn't come at an ideal time uh, prior to those uh, Canada matches. How's she looking? And it's a pretty cutthroat um, sort of way to try and get into the Olympics, isn't it, the the qualifying uh, format? Yeah, it is, but they should be okay. Sammy Kerr's back. She played 90 minutes in the uh, the Women's Champions League this morning, so no dramas there. To be honest, I think having the rest, recently for her was, was handy. You know, she pushed her body a lot. There's no need for her to play in those friendlies. It's a better start over two legs. We'll be fine. Matildas will make it through. And that's another big watch because, as we know, football in the Olympics for women is different to the men's, which is under 23. It's a really prestigious event. It's the second biggest um, trophy or a medal you can win, if you like, after the World Cup for the women. So it's going to be a big time for the Matildas. Under Tony Gustafsson, I think he'll leave after the Olympics. He'll take them there, hopefully win a medal, and then there'll be a managerial change. Unless he leads them to gold and says he wants to stay, then perhaps uh, there'll be a new contract uh, on the offer. But uh, hopefully they can make the podium for the first time and, and give it a shake after that memorable World Cup. And it's probably the last time for this group in this totality to, uh, to try and do that because this wonderful generation of players is starting to alter a little bit. So... Yeah, that's going to be a massive opportunity for them and one of the big watches for Australian sports fans at the Olympics on the whole. And one last quick one for me. Why is it that the men's Olympic tournament is under 23, but the women's is not? Why don't they align it to be the same? It's a good question. Um, it's always been that way. I think a large part of it is to, uh, to not overshadow you know, certain aspects of the Olympics. Um, it's, you know, the, the European Championships, as well, and, and that's another reason. So you've got the Euros, which are coming up next year, which are going to be massive. Uh, the Olympics are at the same time. If players are asked to compete in both competitions, well, they just can't. So you're then starting to weaken either the Olympic team, and if they're in, you know, full age, or you're, you're weakening your European championships. So to be honest, I think it's smart. I like it. And um, you've got every confederation has got their championship, you know, the African Nations Cup, the Asian Cup, the Euros, etc. Um, the South American championships are huge. It's a different setup to the women's game. Um, and as a result, so I think having an under-23 tournament in the Olympics is, is exciting. If the young players coming through, it still means a hell of a lot. And it gives other countries an opportunity. And we've seen African countries win gold before and, yep. and shine. And 
Australia's done pretty well at that age group in the past, and we're starting to build a bit better in, in that sense. I quite like it. I think it would be too difficult to manage the Olympics with all of the uh, confederation championships that we've got and the Euros coming up this year at the same time as the Olympics is a prime example of that. Uh, to well explain, I still remember sitting there as a nine-year-old. I think I saw Cameroon defeat Spain in the 2000 Olympics yeah. in the gold medal match, if my memory serves me correct. And there was a lot of players from that match that ended up being actual all-time greats. Uh, Garby, we really appreciate your time. You are a wealth of knowledge. We can talk for hours, but uh, you've got to go back and uh, enjoy your Friday evening and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Back to watching the cricket. Thanks, Tommy. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. That's Daniel Garb, football expert and one of Paramount football's absolute best. He'll be across the A-League all summer.